Well, according to the U.S. Census, almost one million Americans self-identify as Cherokee. Wherever one travels in the United States, someone is likely to lay claim to a Cherokee ancestor somewhere in their family tree. In fact, travel as far afield as Scotland, Hawaii, or even Australia, and chances are you will meet someone who insists that they are descended from Cherokee forebears. How can so many people, scattered all over the world, claim to be Cherokee? Historian Gregory D. Smithers addresses this question in his new book, The Cherokee Diaspora. He reveals for the first time the origins of the dispersion of the Cherokee people. Smithers takes the reader back to the 18th and 19th centuries to uncover the importance of migration and removal, land and tradition, and culture and language in defining what it means to be Cherokee while living in diaspora. The story is a remarkable one, full of bravery, innovation, and resilience. Gregory Smithers is Associate Professor of History at Virginia Commonwealth University. His research and writing focuses on the histories of Native American and African American people since the 18th century. In fact, he just recently gave a popular two-part class here in early November on the history of Native Americans in Virginia. Some of you may have been here for it. He's particularly interested in the rich history of the Cherokee people, Native American history in the Southeast, and in environmental history. Smithers is the author of numerous books and articles, his most recent being The Cherokee Diaspora, an indigenous history of migration, resettlement, and identity, copies of which make great Christmas presents and will be available for you to purchase and for him to sign in the shop after the lecture. So please join me in a very warm VHS welcome to Greg Smithers. Thank you. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Uh, that was very nice. And thank you all uh, for coming this afternoon. Uh, over the years, I've spent more time uh, at the VHS than I care to count, uh, upstairs in the reading room uh, looking at manuscripts. Uh, so I know this place well, uh, and it's always lovely to come back. And now that I live here, uh, it's really cheap to get to the VHS. Um, and thank you all also for coming and supporting the VHS. Uh, this is a very important institution uh, in our city. Um, and so I am appreciative, uh, as I'm sure the st staff are, uh, of your support. This project of mine, which ended up in this book that you see on the screen there, uh, did not begin in Georgia uh, or North Carolina um, or in Oklahoma, for that matter. It began in Australia. Um, I was sitting in the uh, National Archives of Australia, which is located in Canberra. Uh, and I'm from Australia. Uh, originally, I grew up there, I was educated there, my family all still lived there. Um, I'd moved away, I'd uh, moved to California to uh, try and get a PhD in history. Um, along the way, I met my wife there. Um, and I was back in Australia, though, one uh, summer. Uh, it was the winter in Australia. I was doing research on a different project. And I stumbled across an immigration file. Uh, from the mid-1960s, from 1965, actually. Uh, it was an immigration file to a woman named Cherokee Meeks. Uh, Ms. Meeks and her family had migrated, or were trying to migrate, uh, from Oklahoma uh, to Australia, to Queensland, actually, which is a state very much like uh, Oklahoma and much of the, uh, much of the West. What on earth were they doing there? What were they thinking in 1965 to want to try to relocate their family? I had two or three small children from, from memory. Why were they trying to move to the other side of the world? What would possibly compel someone uh, to take such a drastic step? I was, I was fascinated by this file, um, wanting to know more about this family and at the same time, curious to know whether there had been other people of Cherokee ancestry uh, who had made similar decisions, not only to migrate to Australia, but to other parts of, of the world as well. And so that's how this story started. 
uh, and that cold 2001 uh, winter afternoon in, in Canberra, Australia, uh, Cherokee Meeks and her family did not acquire access to Australia. They did not receive the permission from the Commonwealth government that they were seeking to become permanent uh, uh, members of Australian society. You might remember in 1965, Australia had a policy still in place. It was in place until 1972. Uh, it was called the White Australia Policy. And as someone of Cherokee ancestry, as someone of Native American heritage, uh, the Commonwealth of Australia deemed this an inappropriate uh, family for admission, uh, despite the fact that they came with considerable uh, savings and family assets. Nonetheless, I was curious then. This was the beginning of what has turned out to be an almost decade and a half long search uh, to retrace the Cherokee diaspora. It's taken me, as Paul indicated, to Scotland. It's taken me to uh, parts of England, London, Manchester, back to Australia, to Hawaii, all over North America. Uh, the Cherokee people today live throughout the world. There are Cherokees who call Toronto home. There are Cherokees who call San Francisco, Los Angeles home. Um, there are Cherokees who call Washington, D.C., Boston, New York home. Um, the Cherokee diaspora is, in many ways, a truly global diaspora. It is a product of American colonialism, but it's also a product of Cherokee innovation, of Cherokee of a Cherokee determination uh, to maintain a strong sense of their identity as Cherokee people. And so that initial discovery in Australia, 1965 document, uh, has been what, is, what has been driving me uh, for the last decade and a half uh, to know more about the people who constituted and made uh, the Cherokee diaspora. That's what the book is about. You won't necessarily find this history of the Cherokee diaspora in textbooks from the 19th, 20th, and today. Uh, the Cherokee story is one in which they encounter Europeans, they adapt and become quote-unquote civilized, and they are ultimately forcibly relocated in the 1830s by the federal government. It's one of the more shameful episodes in American history. Other than this forced relocation in the early 19th century, the Cherokee are not thought of historically to have any tradition of movement, migration, and travel. And this map that you see on the screen here is indicative of how we've all been programmed culturally to perceive the Cherokee since the 19th century. This is a map from an 1828 textbook uh, from a primer that was prepared by an educator by the name of Emmer Willard. And you can see on the map there that the Cherokee are positioned in that very, very authoritative uh, oval in the Appalachian region. Whereas there's movements indicated based upon the lines that are drawn for the Shawnee, for the Lower Creek, and for the Iroquois to the north, the Cherokee are thought to be sedentary, to have no history of movement, adaptation, innovation. Um, and this is something that is wrong, uh, that is misleading. And it's indeed what I want to talk to you a little bit about today. Um, the history of Cherokee migration and resettlements, the history of pride that Cherokee have taken with them uh, throughout their diaspora over the course of the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. It was clearly this sense of pride in Cherokee identity that uh, Cherokee Meek's parents felt when they gave their daughter the name Cherokee. One of the things that I was thinking most keenly about all through the years that I was researching this book was why would they name their daughter Cherokee? Clearly there's some sort of concern there on the part of her parents uh, 
Cherokee Meek's parents, that their daughter may, buffeted by the forces of modernity and American colonialism and American assimilation policy in the 20th century, would she forget who she is, her ancestors, where she came from? She only need to say her name then to recall, to be reminded of who she is. So it is indeed then a story of extraordinary uh, courage, of cultural and community and family pride that made the Cherokee diaspora uh, what it was and what it is today. Cherokee Meeks is just the entry point then uh, into correcting uh, this type of one-dimensional history that we have been exposed to for many centuries now. So what do we actually know about the Cherokee people? Well, the Cherokee are an Iroquoian-speaking people, possibly descended from a migratory group of, uh, of, of northern Iroquois Indians uh, who settled in the vast uh, and diverse region that is today the states of Virginia and West Virginia, North and South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Tennessee, and Kentucky. Cherokee towns, one of which you see reproduced there on the screen, that's a reproduction of the town of Choda, uh, an important overhill uh, town that is uh, now underwater. I'll talk about that in a second. Um, this town would have been located in what is today uh, Tennessee. The Cherokee town names often reflected uh, the Iroquoian uh, ancestry of the Cherokee people. Towns such as Seneca and Katua highlighted the, the, the linguistic connection uh, and the antecedents of the Cherokee people. They offered clues as to where the Cherokee came from. An archaeologist and linguist over the past generation or more now are in general agreement that the evidence that we have suggests that uh, Cherokee people are descended from migrants, northern Iroquoian migrants, who settled in the Appalachian region about 4,000 years ago. They were outsiders then uh, to the southeast. They were sometimes referred to uh, by other native peoples in the southeast as cave people or cave dwellers. But the Cherokee, the people who come to be known as the Cherokee, they see themselves as keepers of a sacred fire, the Jalagi, the Cherokee, who by 1,000 in our common era uh, come to refer to themselves as the principal people, an identifiable, strong and sophisticated political, cultural and social system uh, that is connected with other native communities and societies throughout the Southeast and ultimately connected after the arrival of Europeans in the 16th century to a transatlantic world of trade and cultural exchange. The Overhill Cherokee are particularly important to the story of the Cherokee diaspora. Towns such as Choda that you see on the screen there, they provided something of uh, an access route, at least from the English perspective, to the rich and fertile lands of the Ohio and Illinois valleys. The Tennessee River, which was once referred to as the Cherokee River, was dominated by Cherokees who lived in towns like this. Rivers, keep in mind, are the superhighways uh, of the early modern period, and Cherokee people controlled and dominated those rivers. This town, uh, by the way, Choda, probably the most important town in Cherokee society uh, in the 18th century. It's now underwater. It sits at the bottom. Its remains sit at the bottom of the Teleco Dam, which was completed after a long legal battle um, that was fought by the Cherokee people with uh, environmental allies uh, for much of the 1960s and 1970s. Colonialism, in other words, still impacts Cherokee people as it does for all Native American people. 
But what this image indicates is that Cherokee people lived in tightly knit communities, town life structured one's life and identity. Uh, it provided the sense of rhythm uh, to an individual's uh, life. But so too did one's clan identity. The Cherokee people belong historically to one of seven matrilineal clans. Women have an enormous amount of political power in traditional Cherokee society. They are responsible for food production and distribution. Women are responsible for determining who can and cannot become a member of a clan. Women, for example, often have the last word on determining who of the captives, captives of war or captives because they are uh, owe debts to a particular Cherokee town or clan. Women are responsible for determining when and how those individuals will become members of a particular clan. Women have so much political power in Cherokee society that one French observer in the 1790s referred to the Cherokee as living under a petticoat government. <laughs> so the Cherokee, by the time Europeans arrived then in the 16th century, and certainly the English in the following century, have a very sophisticated uh, society, both culturally, socially, and politically. And women are at the core of that society. Historians have charted this history fairly consistently for many generations now. Um, the arc of Cherokee history typically follows this narrative of uh, traditional town and clan life, uh, the role of women and the matrilineal nature of Cherokee society. And that history often culminates and indeed ends with removal. An era that I mentioned moments ago is perhaps uh, one of the most tragic in American history. This narrative isn't wrong. It's not incorrect to inculcate generations of school children and college uh, students with this narrative. Cherokee people did encounter traders, settlers, colonial officials, missionaries, and ultimately enslaved African and African-American people. All of this is part of the reshaping of Cherokee life over the 17th and 18th and into the 19th century. It's not wrong, but it's incomplete. It's an incomplete picture of whom the Cherokee people are and what they became over the course of the 18th, 19th century and into the present day. And to get a sense of who the Cherokee people are, get a fuller, richer sense of, of Cherokee history and culture, what I did during the course of this research was to revisit the oral traditions, the oral narratives that gave the meaning and purpose to life for Cherokee communities for so many centuries. Stories of the earth being once divided, of Cherokee ancestors being forced to cross a great bridge that later sank to the bottom of the ocean. Stories of lost Cherokees, Cherokee warriors and hunters who, in what Europeans call the early modern period, migrated beyond, temporarily, the Trans-Mississippi all the way to that great mountain range that we know as the Rocky Mountains in search of buffalo. These are stories that are not often recalled in the histories of Cherokee people. Similarly, the most famous story of all in Cherokee history and culture, uh, the story of Selu, the corn mother, and Kanadi, the lucky hunter. This story actually draws our attention to the importance of human movement in Cherokee culture. To be sure, it tells us a story of how the Cherokee acquired their sources of food, its sense of identity, but it does more than that. Um, it places travel and migration and relocation at the center of 
Cherokee identities throughout Cherokee history. And there are other forms of travel, too, that we should be aware of. In the 1730s and 1760s, for example, Cherokees were among visitors to London. Diplomats, representatives of their people, representing the interest of Cherokee people, asserting their sovereignty and their independence from the English crown. So migration, relocation, resettlement, these are all part of Cherokee history and culture, and they become much more a systematic part, a routine part of Cherokee history and, and the Cherokee story after the 1750s. And this is particularly true in the latter half of the 18th century, um, a half century that's dominated by the Seven Years' War and the American Revolution, uh, a, a half century that's dominated in, from a Cherokee perspective, the devastation of so many of their communities, the destruction of their towns and crops at the hands of a very aggressive uh, settlers, particularly expansionist Virginian settlers uh, during this half century. And so initially, in the half century after the 18th century, Cherokee people begin to relocate and reestablish their towns and their culture and their families in other parts of Cherokee country in the southeast. Rather than reestablishing their lives in towns, as they once had so commonly done, they begin to reestablish uh, community life around farmsteads, believing that those farmsteads would offer them a source of both sustenance, but also a geographical form of protection from these aggressive white people. Some Cherokees, it should be pointed out, most notably the Chickamauga, led by figures such as Talantusky, who I talk about at great length in the book, wanted to forcibly resist the expansion of Anglo-American settler colonialism during the late 18th and into the early 19th century. Many Chickamauga Cherokees became the vanguard of the Cherokee diaspora during this period. They migrated to the Trans-Mississippi West, not as men in search of buffalo or to hunt and prove their masculinity. They migrated with entire communities, with women and children, with people of all demographics. They were relocating their life as they knew it in the Southeast, and they were trying to keep a sense of what it meant to be Cherokee alive away at safe distance from these aggressive Americans. Some of the people who led the vanguard of the Cherokee diaspora during the turn of the 18th and 19th century included figures like this that you see on the screen. He's known to the English as John Jolly, a prominent overhill chief in modern-day Tennessee. John Jolly is most famous for being the adoptive father of Sam Houston. Sam Houston was an adopted Cherokee. He spent much of his youth living with and learning the history and culture of the Cherokee people. And it was this man whom he traveled with into Arkansas Territory in the early 19th century, in 1817, actually, where Jolly and his community, which included Sam Houston, relocated and attempted to reestablish a traditional sense of Cherokee life in the Trans-Mississippi West. And it's not surprising that we see these waves of migration during this period of the late 18th and early 19th century. Historians have long known about a series of removal crises that struck at the very heart of Cherokee communities, uh, firstly in 1806, then in 1809, then in 1817, which prompted Jolly and his community to leave, head for Arkansas. Then in 1828, and again in 1829, and of course all through the 1830s, when the Cherokee mounts their famous legal 
opposition to removal. The Cherokee are certainly by the early 19th century becoming an increasingly diasporic people. They needed some sort of intellectual framework to best articulate who they now were in this new world, in this new colonial world to them. And one of the individuals, one of the great minds of the 19th century Cherokee community was the man on the screen there, Bak Uwedi, better known as Elias Boudinot. He's a fascinating character who I talk about in great detail uh, in the book. Let me give you a brief summary of who Bak Uwedi was. He was born, born Bak Uwedi, and took the name of the philanthropist and revolutionary era hero Elias Boudinot. His education was both at the hands of his Cherokee elders and at the feet of missionaries. He attended the famous missionary school in Cornwall, Connecticut, where he shared a classroom with students who were Greek, Malay, Maori, Hawaiian, Choctaw, Oneida, and fellow Cherokees. This education proved pivotal in Bak Uwedi's life. And in 1826, in May 1826 actually, he outlines what I argue in the book is a framework for both a Cherokee diasporic identity, but he also outlines a very explicit critique of anti-Indian racism. You here behold an Indian, Boudinou argued in that 1826 address. My kindred are Indians, and my father sleeping in the wilderness grave. They too were Indians. But I am not as my fathers were. Broader means and nobler influences have fallen upon me. This is a statement about the innovative and adaptive nature of Cherokee people and their culture. Tradition is not something that stays the same generation after generation. It's something that's adapted and is alive. It adapts to the needs of the people who give it meaning. And this is what Bakuwedi is trying to do, is trying to let white people know in his address in 1826 that we are still Cherokee, irrespective of the so-called civilized improvements that you white people perceive that we've internalized. So for Elias Boudinot then, the Cherokee people possess the mental skills, the intellectual agility, and a deep sense of commitment to maintaining their Cherokee identity irrespective of where settler colonialism pushes them and forces them to migrate and relocate in the world. Boudinot's cousin, John Ridge, added a note about the past and present future, past, present, and future, excuse me, nature of the Cherokee diaspora. When he wrote of the mingling of two migratory people, Europeans and Cherokees, Cherokee and white blood, Ridge insisted, will inevitably intermingle and wind its course in beings of fair complexion. Now that has all sorts of implications for all the people out there who contend that they have Cherokee ancestors. Importantly, I think, to note is that Ridge and Boudinot themselves practiced what they preached, at least in respect to the intermingling of white and Cherokee blood. Ridge married a white woman, Sarah Northrup, and Boudinot married a young woman by the name of Harriet Gold, who so infuriated her family that one of her cousins wrote a terrible letter to her uh, during their courtship, telling her, oh, dear Harriet, whose gold shall soon be dimmed. It was quite cruel. 
Perigot was also burned in effigy in the town of Cornwall on a number of occasions. The, the, the feeling against her was so uh, intense. Um, uh, one, uh, one famous quote about their marriage was that it was simply a reflection of base lust uh, for one another and that all that will be produced from such an intermingling of, of blood are black young ones. So interesting racial uh, commentary. Now, if Elias Boudinot, Baku Awadi, excuse me, trying to outline something of an intellectual foundation for life in diaspora, it is this man, Sequoia, who provides the written language to articulate what it means to be Cherokee. Sequoia is a great hero of Cherokee history. He was born in the early 1770s and was raised by his mother. Uh, his father was a white man, a trader. Um, he uh, left uh, shortly after uh, Sequoia's birth. So his mother raised him, and his uncles, remember Talentusky? Talentusky and another uncle, Corntassel, provided the young Sequoia with his formal education. Talentusky, uh, who himself was the principal chief of the town of Old Ekota, uh, a town that was famous for taking in uh, refugees uh, in the 18th and early 19th century. Sequoia grew up in this environment of, of great movement and migration, of people coming and going. Um, and this is not uncommon for people in the Overhill towns in modern-day Tennessee. This was a great humming highway of commerce and cultures being exchanged. But according to an early 19th century elder, a man by the name of the Bark, Sequoia saw nothing particularly special in the way of European writing. Sequoia, in fact, dismissed the letters that Europeans put on the printed page. There was nothing special in speaking, in communicating without speaking. And Sequoia was determined, utterly so, to demonstrate to his fellow Cherokees that they too could develop their own system of writing to communicate with each other without talking. And that's what he said to do with his syllabary. As the bark recalled, one day, Sequoia went so far as to declare that he was of the opinion that he could find out a way by which the Cherokee could detain and communicate their ideas just as well as the white people could. This was a source of pride for the Cherokee people to do this. And indeed, one of the wonderful things about studying the Cherokee diaspora is the manner in which they do indeed detain their thoughts and put them in writing, in English, but also in the syllabary. Keep in mind that the Cherokee people are the first to have, first Native American people to have a newspaper uh, in the early 1800s, the Cherokee Phoenix newspaper. And that newspaper was itself in many ways part of an emerging Cherokee diaspora. There were agents who would try and sell that newspaper all over the United States. And indeed, there were people, agents, who would travel across the Atlantic and to London to distribute that newspaper. Many years ago, I was in uh, the British Library, and I asked uh, the archivist in there how they came across um, a complete set of the Cherokee Phoenix newspaper. Um, and it seems to be the case that there were agents who were selling the Cherokee newspaper, the Cherokee Phoenix, uh, to Londoners. Quite extraordinary. The reach with which Cherokee ideas of politics, of culture, um, were circulated throughout the Atlantic world and indeed ultimately through the Pacific world also. And this is very important. Uh, as I detail in the book, the reason that this form of communication in newspaper form ultimately in pamphlet form, uh, in the form of religious language, 
in an epistolary culture, in letter writing. Cherokee people wrote wonderfully detailed letters about the most mundane things of everyday life. Someone they're trying to court, um, what they're going to have for dinner, a lesson they had received on astronomy. This is being committed to the written page in English, but also in the syllabary. What a wonderful gift Sequoia gave to not only the Cherokee people, but to the world. And I mention this because this is very important in the, in the context of the 19th century and certainly after the removal of the Cherokee people from their homeland in the southeast. Cherokee people develop two homelands in a sense. They recreate a homeland in Indian territory, a new political homeland. But they also retain, both in reality and in their imagination, a traditional homeland in the southeast. And that is a tradition that the Eastern Band of Cherokee continue to this day. This is also important because in the context of the 19th century, there are many, many developments that went swirling around and across North America. Most notably, the gold rush in California, which see a number of Cherokee people migrate along what was known as the California Road across the Rockies and to the gold fields of California where they hope to strike it rich. There are so many stories I could tell about Cherokees who went to California, some who stayed, some who came back and named towns California in the Cherokee Nation. You'll have to buy the book to read about them, though. <laughs> some, I should point out, didn't strike it rich. In fact, many didn't strike it rich in California. And one of the phenomenons that we see in the 1850s is this phenomenon of steamliners in San Francisco Harbor that advertise their services to gold seekers who are down on their luck, and many Cherokees, like others who went to California, were. They're offering their services to transport people to Australia. Australia's having a simultaneous gold rush in the 1850s and 60s. And so we have evidence to suggest that African Americans and Cherokee people hopped on those steamers which they were assured were well-equipped with medical supplies and physicians who would treat them with any malady that they might uh, come down with on that long voyage to Australia, which was still a British colony at that time. Again, many didn't strike it rich in Australia. Uh, in fact, many faced uh, outright persecution and racism and hopped back on the steamers to San Francisco. But the importance of all this is in the context then of a dispersing diasporic people and their ability and indeed willingness to continue to communicate with each other, to foster, to foster bonds that connect people over vast distances and that continue to embed with each new generation a pride in their Cherokee ancestry. Now, I don't want to speak too, in, in, in too great a detail about the Trail of Tears, which was referred to euphemistically in the early 19th century as the Great Emigration. And I talk, I talk in length in the book about where this phrase, the Trail of Tears, uh, comes from. And it is still something that is open to dispute uh, among historians uh, and in the vernacular culture of the United States. Uh, in general. But what you see there on the screen is a map from the National Park Service. Now, it is true that the Cherokee put up a wonderful and uh, complex and coordinated uh, legal battle to maintain their homelands. And they had some wonderful um, legal victories. But what I want to emphasize to you all here today is that people not only walked the Trail of Tears has come to be known. And, and some of the recollections that I have in the book of people who recall uh, ancestors and relatives talking about walking, 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 endless walking. And that is absolutely true. 
But it's also true that this was a technological effort to eradicate a native people uh, from the southeast. Boats, trains, ox-drawn wagons, the military, federal bureaucracy, all combined to remove upwards of 17,000 Cherokee people from their homeland, and in total, between 70 and 80,000 Native Americans from Eastern North America. We could learn a lot from this inglorious moment uh, in American history, given that we have some political candidates who would like to institute something similar today. <laughs> no names need be mentioned. So removal does loom large in the story of the Cherokee diaspora. It looms large in the life of one person who I want to just mention briefly and who I talk about in the book. Her name is Mary Jane Longknife. She, like many Cherokee people, her families uh, get caught up in this era of removal. And I'll save the details for when you're reading it over Christmas break. Um, Suffice it to say that Mary Jane Longknife and her sister ultimately migrate to Hawaii. They live out their lives in Oahu, where Mary Jane is buried. She died in 1906, but not before, not before she did not get her, she got her name on the doors roll, which began collecting the names of Cherokee people in 1906. And there are other Cherokees, famous and not so famous Cherokees who become part of the diaspora uh, during this period, including Narcissa Owen, who you see on the screen there, born in Arkansas in the 1830s, marries a railroad engineer by the name of Robert Owen, has two sons who go on to famous political careers in Washington, DC. Narcissa Owen and her husband, Robert, live for a period in Lynchburg, Virginia, but she also spends time in Washington, DC and the Cherokee Nation. This is a fabulously mobile Cherokee diaspora now by the middle and late 19th century. And there are problems. It's very difficult when you have so much movement to ascertain who is and is not legitimately Cherokee. There were many white people who tried to make a claim to being Cherokee during the late 19th and early 20th centuries including the descendants of freedmen, African-Americans who, as I detail in the book, struggle with poverty, uh, with, it has to be said, racism from both white and Native American communities, and many of them who file petitions for citizenship in the Cherokee Nation, uh, their files end up in these filing cabinet drawers of the Cherokee Citizenship Commission which I spend a good deal of time talking about in the book and discussing in particular how the legal and bureaucratic processes of underscoring and, and proving beyond a reasonable doubt one's Cherokee identity becomes tied up with a complex history of overlapping diasporas of the Afro-Cherokee and African-American diasporas in the late 19th and early 20th century. Remember, the Civil War and its conclusion unleashes enormous, enormous migration and movement throughout the United States. And again, Native people are caught up in that by their own choosing and otherwise. So where are we today? Well, as Paul indicated at the top of the lecture, there's almost a million people who self-identify as Cherokee. According to the 2010 census, 819,105 people identify themselves as Cherokee. These may be highly questionable and dubious um, self-identifications, but nonetheless it does indicate also the success of the Cherokee in retaining a pride and cultivating their identity, their culture, their society, their politics in diaspora and in the homelands. There are today three federally recognized Cherokee nations, 
the Cherokee Nation in Indian Territory, the United Katua Band of Cherokees, also um, in modern-day Oklahoma, and the Eastern Band of Cherokees in North Carolina. What I would say in conclusion is that the reason so many people assert that they have Cherokee quote-unquote blood, and I'll be happy to take questions about this issue of blood quantum in Q&A, the reason that people assert that identity are many, but one of the reasons, as I say, is that Cherokee people have not only survived, they've not only survived centuries of colonialism, migration and resettlement, they've maintained a deep sense of pride in their Cherokee history and culture, irrespective, irrespective of where their travels have taken them. Thank you all for listening. And I'm happy to take questions if you have any. Down the front here. I've read that there were uh, Cherokees families that stayed in areas like East Tennessee. They owned property. Were these men ever given the right to vote? So one of the things that happens in the decades after removal is that the federal government says that if you stay in Tennessee, in Georgia, uh, in Alabama, um, in North and South Carolina, as many do, uh, you become you become a citizen of your respective state. And so the Census Bureau, the Census Bureau defines those people as white. They are in effect deracinated by the federal government uh, in that process. Now, that's not to say that those people don't lose sight of their Cherokee identity and their Cherokee forebears, uh, because it's clear to me that they don't. Uh, and this is why you do see people uh, reappearing and asserting their Cherokee identity during the late 19th century and then into the early 20th century when you have enlistees in the First and Second World War from places like Illinois and Ohio uh, who assert their Cherokee identity, their Cherokee genealogy. Um, families keep this alive and I think that's a very important part of the Cherokee diaspora uh, and the story of the Cherokee diaspora is that while there is this effort on the part of the federal government assisted by state and local governments over the course of uh, the 19th century, um, Cherokee people do not fold. They do not assimilate, to use that word, uh, as uh, the, the bureaucracy, the white American bureaucracy wishes them to do. Uh, the Cherokee uh an interesting, uh, an interesting story, by the way. But the uh, Cherokee uh, wanted to keep their distinctive culture alive. Mm -hmm. How did they mix and mingle with the Creeks and the Choctaw and the other Native Americans uh, that they encountered? Very good question. So two things I want to emphasize about that. Uh, one is the Cherokee and the Creek were at war with each other for quite some time uh, over the course of the 18th century. And so the relationship between Cherokees, particularly overhill Cherokees and upper creeks, uh, was often volatile and, and indeed violent, um, and uh, not always uh, on a uh, friendly basis. However, having said that, Cherokee people did, and they had a long history of trading with um, and migrating into and out of uh, the Creek uh, Confederacy and into and out of other Native American uh, communities and societies throughout the Southeast, uh, and indeed up into uh, the Ohio and Illinois Valleys uh, also. The other thing I'll say about that, um, and this is something that I talk more about in the book, is after removal and relocation to Indian Territory, um, and this is, we see this particularly um, after the Civil War, um, the Cherokee uh, people, the Cherokee leaders in particular, worked very fast to reestablish uh, government and, and uh, some semblance of normal life. 
And out of that comes, out of that sort of foundation comes the, the rekindling and flourishing once again of Cherokee dance and storytelling, uh, but also of other native peoples clamoring to try and become citizens of the Cherokee nation in a way that we do not see in the Creek or the Choctaw and Chickasaw nations during this period. Um, there's something particular, particularly strong, uh, a, a strong sense of pride and a proactive sense of pride that seems to draw uh, other native peoples to uh, the Cherokee nation in the late 19th century. And that, I would suggest, is indicative of this longer trajectory that I've been talking about, um, of this sort of deep and active uh, engagement with their own traditions. Do the Cherokees of today have a great loathing for President Andrew Jackson? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you. Uh, I, I, I just have trivia and then lead to a question, but I, I think I must say this. Uh, I have some, no Cherokee background, but uh, I lived in Fayetteville, Arkansas as a boy, uh, 50 miles from Oklahoma. Uh, Mount Sequoia is the mountain with the Methodist campgrounds right. above Fayetteville, which is the town where Clinton and his wife met. Mm -hmm. uh, my my father, my grandfather, was an engineer. Road in eighteen ninety eight. So I'm fascinated that uh, this wonderful Cherokee woman's husband was a railroad engineer that moved into my state of Arkansas. Mm -hmm. I was born in Hevener, Oklahoma. Uh, my grandfather, retired railroad engineer, bought a small town down out of out of Stillwell. I can remember when I was five, about 1922, that my grandfather pointed up the hills from the farm in Stillwell, out in the country, and said, "There are Indians that live up there." Mm. And my cousin who died, who was a surgeon in Tulsa, his second wife was, I think, Osage, but was Indian. Mm -hmm. uh, one question that comes from this, um, can you trace the willingness of Americans individually and as a group to gradually come to terms to with being pride of their background, whoever they were? I say that in the context of realizing that uh, Indians might have some so-called black blood in them. Mm -hmm. And we who pride ourselves, and I'm not one of them, but I wish I were, those who pride themselves in Indian, uh, generally speak, we cannot yet say, ooh, I might have a little bit of somebody else's blood that's also a human being. Mm. Thank you. That's all my question, yeah. the progress, people <laughs> accepting blacks and or white, theoretically, possibly something in their background, just as Thomas Jefferson's, some of the relatives have had to right. do. Right, yeah. No, thank you. Thank you for the question and for the recollections. That's, they're very important recollections, actually, because that's an area of Arkansas where you do see a lot of interracial Cherokee and white families uh, during the latter half of the 19th century. Um, Look, the, the thing I would say about the rediscovery of people's uh, Cherokee blood or Native American blood in general is that this is something that the post-Second World War has made possible. Um, I think the, the fall of fascist, European fascism and then the fall of Jim Crow segregation and racism in the United States opened up a cultural space for people to actually embrace publicly what had been kept private for a generation or more. Um, so I'm not always immediate in my dismissal of people who come to me and say that they have Cherokee blood. And the reason for that is the Cherokee people have this long history of migration 
and adopting outsiders, uh, whether it's through traditional means or through intermarriage. And so it's not always necessarily beyond the realms of possibility that those stories that lie dormant and that an aunt or a great aunt has passed on are completely fictitious. Um, and as I say, I think the cultural space that's been opened up by uh, the fall of, of, of mid-20th century fascism and racism, um, not to say that we're a society free of racism, certainly not, um, but that there has been this space opened up that we can reconnect with those older connections uh, that exist in our colonial history. They're there. They're real. We denied them for so long. And I think one of the things that um, is happening is that people are feel safer now to actually lay claim to them. You, you started off by uh, saying that the lady named Cherokee yes. tried to immigrate to Australia? That's correct. Did either she or her husband have a profession? They were farmers. Okay, that is, could be another reason that Australia didn't want them, because Australia in 65 to 68 was desperately in need of professionals. Right. And so there could be two reasons that they were rejected. Yep. No, that's right. I think that's true. In the dying days of both white Australia and the uh, need for... One of the things that, you know, Australia, this is so slightly off topic, but in mid-20th century Australia... Uh, there's something of a brain drain that goes on. A lot of people go to Europe and England and some to the United States uh, for pre professional purposes, and that is true. However, the one thing I'll say about that is this family seemed to be responding to a very specific advertisement uh, for migrants to northern Queensland, and they, on their application, asserted that they not only had uh, savings to bring with them, but farm equipment. Um, so that they went out of their way to indicate that suggests to me that they, they were indeed trying to uh, appeal to very specific requests on the part of perhaps the Queensland government. I'm, I'm curious about the um, picture depicted on your book. Um, mm -hmm. I take it of a Cherokee. Mm -hmm. First, what is the significance of that photograph? And secondly, my understanding is that there's a difference between the Cherokee wearing their feathers down their back in, mm -hmm. uh, in an upward position. So this is an image that's uh, rarely used. Um, Kuni shot or shot as he's uh, known from uh, the 18th century. One of the Cherokee chiefs who uh, went to England uh, in uh, the 1760s, 1763. Um, this is a portrait made by uh, a uh, French artist uh, and that was uh, subsequently purchased by uh, a Scot who sold a number of these types of uh, images of Native American uh, people uh, throughout uh, in the European uh, art market. Um, the red feather is interesting. The red feather would indicate that he's a war chief. Um, and the manner in which he's clasping that knife would uh, reinforce uh, <laughs> that, that observation. Um, but at the same time, he's, he's wearing regalia that suggests that he is an emissary who's uh, also willing to uh, treat and try and engage in uh, dialogue that will bring about what was referred to in the 18th century as uh, friendship, uh, diplomatic friendship, um, uh, the chain of friendship, as uh, the Cherokee and other Native Americans uh, referred to it. Um, but he's not willing, clearly, uh, based upon his posture, the way in which he's clasping that knife, the feather, uh, and the very firm um, uh, way in which he's gazing uh, at something in the distance, he's not willing to uh, roll over, clearly, in those <laughs> negotiations. <laughs> I love this image, which is why I chose it for those very reasons. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, I've noticed that on the Virginia is for Lovers website, they promote tourism in Virginia through uh, the Monacan Nation, the Powhatan people, and the Cherokee Indians of Virginia. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that then Virginia is reluctant to state recognize the Cherokee tribes that are in Virginia today? Politics. <laughs> Politics. 
Um, the Cherokee people have a long history in Virginia, both uh, having uh, permanent settlements that date back to about uh, 3,000, uh, and thereafter also coming into uh, southwestern Virginia to hunt. Uh, and also, um, uh, so in addition to living, residing, uh, hunting in the lands of, of southwestern Virginia, uh, also traveling uh, throughout Virginia to engage in trade and diplomacy uh, with other native peoples uh, and also ultimately with European uh, colonizers. That Virginia lawmakers do not understand or, or want to see that history uh, is to me uh, a great injustice. Uh, that's being done to uh, the Cherokee people, uh, particularly Cherokee people who call Virginia home, uh, and perhaps is also a re reflection of the many generations of education, miseducation, shall we call it, uh, of the history of, of Native peoples in, in the Commonwealth. Um, and I think that's something we need to work on. I'm sure Greg would answer further questions upstairs, but we have to get it up to sign books. Thank you. Thank you.